It all started on the day that I died. If there had been an obituary, it would have described the unremarkable life of an unremarkable woman, survived by no one. But there was no obituary, because the day that I died was also the day I started to live. Welcome to Now Playing Podcast's review of Catwoman. What a perfect idea. Part of the Now Playing DC Comics movie series. Listen to me, we're going to get through this together, okay? Hosted by Jacob. Very self-confident, almost angry. Arnie. This person doesn't like to play by all the rules. And Stuart. You've got more talent than anybody in the building, which I hate you for, by the way. This podcast will contain detailed plot spoilers and mild language. Listener discretion is advised. And so, my journey begins. Today we're discussing Cat Chick, Cat Broad, oh, Cat Woman! Starring Halle Berry, Benjamin Bratt, Sharon Stone, and Alex Borstein. Directed by Pitoff. Huh? I think that's how I cook my rice. Rice pitoff. <laughs> Truly one of the greats. I'm Arnie, and films like this are catnip to a reviewer like me. Mmm, Stuart in LA. And this is Jacob, the host that, when I'm sometimes good, oh, I'm good. But sometimes I'm bad, but only as bad as I want to be. Or this movie. <laughs> Yeah, you can't be as bad as this movie. (laughs) And before we talk about this movie, and we will talk about this movie, I need to clear something up with the listeners, because they've been poking me on Facebook and on the forums going, Arnie, 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 you can't let Stuart end on a good note, can you? You just can't let a series end with a good movie. You always have to end on a down note. That's why Catwoman is coming after... The Dark Knight Rises. And I want to make it damn clear to every listener, not me. This was Stuart's choice. I wanted to do this movie as part of the Batman series between Batman and Robin and Batman Begins. Stuart was the one who's like, nope, we're going to do it after. That's absolutely true. A little factoid about the behind the scenes of now playing is I am the one that usually creates schedules and I furiously revise them all the time, which is not to say I get to pick the movies we watch. I simply get to arrange the way that we watch the movies as they are paired with the release date. There was no way to get Catwoman in by the time Nolan's movie was coming out. But more to the point, there's no Batman in this movie. I don't see how you can have Catwoman as part of the Batman series and his name not even come up. To me, this is an entirely different thing altogether. And I just didn't see any Batman in it. I don't know how you could say it's Batman. I will make the argument as we go through that this is in the Burton universe. It is a shared universe experience, just like all those Avengers films. There was no Iron Man in Thor, but... Those were a shared universe. And I think the same thing goes on here. Had the world been a different place, perhaps George Clooney and Halle Berry could have teamed up someplace. (laughs) Hadn't both of those movies not royally sucked. Yeah. Uh, Question right off the bat. Does Catwoman exist without Batman? I'm not seeing it here. You know, to me, she was defined as the arch nemesis slash love interest that 
it could never be for Batman. Does she have an identity beyond that, Jacob? Does she have her own comic adventures that don't involve Kate Crusaders or Gotham? I can answer that because I know for a fact she does. I own Catwoman number one. You can't have graphic sex in a mainstream comic and not have Arnie buy it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there are Catwoman comics. Now, Batman does show up to bone Catwoman in that comic, though, Arnie. That is true. Stuart wants to know if the two can separate. Can they divorce? And yes, there's been some great Catwoman stories out there. With Dark Knight Rises, I talked about how they got Catwoman right. And the way you get her right is she's a thief stealing things, and she always gets herself into more trouble. So she'll steal a diamond and get herself into trouble with the mob. We saw hints of that with the Dark Knight Rises, where she's stealing things, but she's in deeper with Bane. I mean, that's the right take I think you could do with Catwoman. Ed Brubaker, Darwin Cook, they did some very successful takes with Catwoman in the comics that, you know, Batman might show up once in a while. They take place in Gotham, but she'll travel around the world getting in trouble. You know, very Ocean's Eleven type take with the character, and it works well. Okay, because I can't imagine what she would be doing without Batman. I just, the idea that they would even attempt to do a standalone movie was head-scratching. Jacob, in her standalone comic, though, Catwoman is a hero, right? I mean, maybe an anti-hero, but she's stopping worse villains than herself. Yeah, I mean, she is the classic anti-hero. She's always going to steal your diamonds or your nice stuff if you got them to steal. But deep down, I guess she's got the heart of gold. She's not going to hurt anyone too bad unless you're a horrible criminal, a a mobster. Then she's going to attack you. But she's never going to go so far as to hurt an innocent, your typical villain would. She's going to stop there, but she'll steal your stuff. Okay, so does she have recurring nemesises? Does she have an arch villain? Is there someone to Catwoman as Joker is to Batman? And if so, is this person a beauty cream magistrate? Oh, I could only wish. I mean, the feminine wiles of Catwoman taking on the makeup industry. No, I mean, I guess her reoccurring enemy is just your typical underground mobster. She does not have a Joker or a stone Sharon Stone. <laughs> An ossified camp star. I love that. There are many choices made in this movie. I, that is not the worst one to go. All right. So I'm open to it. I do think it's weird. The only comparative I have, it'd be like having a Lois Lane movie without Superman. She is a supporting character for the star of the series. And I think what happened was Catwoman Michelle Pfeiffer style was the thing that stood out in Batman Returns. After that movie, people were like, I don't know if I want any more Batman, but she was good. And I think that that's what kind of kicked this project off. Originally, Catwoman, the standalone movie, was conceived as a reteaming of Burton and Pfeiffer. They were going to do it on their own. And for much of a decade, it was in discussion. I actually read the script that Daniel Waters turned in. He did it the day that Batman Forever came out. He said, okay, well, here's the next thing you guys can do. And it was a very, almost Edward Scissorhands kind of satire of a Vegas kind of landscape. It was casinos. Selina Kyle had been rescued with amnesia from Gotham and returned to her mother, who was living in this retirement community, working as a cocktail waitress and trying to bust a league of super men that were actually ripping off the casinos. Honestly, it's not much funnier or wittier than what we got today. So I don't think that we ever missed 
a good Catwoman. Like, I don't think, like, this one got away and it was ruined in the process of recasting and rewriting. I really think that from the get-go, this was never a solid idea. But that's how this started. What I read was they had... One of the big stumbling blocks was Michelle Pfeiffer did not want the role again. The suit was too uncomfortable, and she just did not want to get back into either the shape or that suit, one or the other. And Burton was always iffy about doing the project himself. I think that after he had his own debacle with Warner Brothers on Superman Lives, it just wasn't very appealing. Once Burton said no... Pfeiffer definitively said no. Those two were a package, and it really wasn't until the beginning of this last decade that they walked away and in came Pitoff and a whole lot of rewriters. Pitoff? Who is Pitoff? I just <laughs> happened to notice during the opening credits that the director had one name, and I'm like, Pitoff? I had to pause it and immediately look it up because I kind of knew what I was getting into. I have seen this movie once before but I was paying more attention this time, and I had to know who the hell Pitoff is. I honestly thought it was somebody using a pseudonym because this was almost an Alan Smithy job. I really thought Pitoff was some director who did not want association. <laughs> I know who Pitoff is. He worked on Alien Resurrection. He was a special effects artist. He's French. And he worked with Jean Genet and Marc Caro on their early movies. Some really enjoyable ones, Delicatessen. So he had some cred and he, he directed a one-off 19th century detective piece of crap. It kind of looked like Van Helsing, but he was an aspiring director who had some visual flair and worked cheap. <laughs> well, this movie wasn't cheap. This movie was $100 million, and this is what $100 million buys you. Yeah. Well, in general, though, I, I support your bias. If the director has one name, I get a little nervous. I think about McGee, Tarsim, you know, now Madonna's directing movies. In general, I think it's a bad thing for the one name director. It's a bad omen. One of many that are now surrounding this project. It's like a black cat crossing your path, a one name director on the screen. Well, in my research for this, there was a one name director, but there was a litany of writers. According to what I read, 28 writers submitted their name to the arbitration process for credit. Out of those 28, three people got writing credit, three people got story credit, leaving 22 people out in the cold. Well, I think part of it was, okay, now that it's not connected with Michelle Pfeiffer, Selena Kyle, where do you go with it? I do think that it really sent them off in all kinds of directions. You know, after Michelle walked, they went first with a lookalike. They're like, well, let's just get someone that looks like Michelle. So they got Ashley Judd. And she played ball for a little while, but, you know, ultimately decided she'd rather do some more weak-ass thrillers with Morgan Freeman than <laughs> do this movie. And, you know, they went to Nicole Kidman. I, you know, they probably went through a lot of actresses. In the early part of the 2000s, there was a lot of female-centric action movies. It was a thing. You know, Tomb Raider had really kicked it off. But they finally settled on one. Oscar winner Halle Berry. Yeah. Now why are you singing the Star Trek theme? <laughs> I feel like every time Halle Berry shows up on screen in this movie, there's some kind of gospel-inflected woman in the background giving props. I just honestly thought the entire score was by In Vogue. <laughs> she did look like she was perpetually auditioning to replace Beyonce in Destiny's Child. I mean, there's so much gyration. Like All she needed was a pole, basically. 
I am for colorblind casting. It's not like we didn't have Eartha Kit in the 60s. I think this was a great way to go. I remember when this came out, I was shocked because Ryan Reynolds did it later and I was still equally confused, but she already had a comic character. She was Storm, and because of her Oscar, she was already saying she wasn't going to come back for X-Men 3, so I was really confused when she decided to do another comic book franchise. Well, part of her beef with X-Men was the fact that she wasn't really being featured in it. It was an ensemble, and one I think that if you go back to this podcast, we clearly state she is not a big part of. I mean, they do fix it, quote-unquote. In the last one, but for the most part, she really doesn't have a lot to do. And here is a star vehicle in which she is the superhero front and center. I mean, I can see some of the appeal up front. I would have definitely checked with my agent and read the script before I would assign the dotted line. But Hallie was fresh from an Oscar and she was picking big commercial projects. She also was starring as a Bond girl in Die Another Day. We'll get to that towards the end of this year. Was this around the time she also did Topless in Swordfish? That was around the time that she got the Oscar, but yes. She kind of did her her thing in reverse. You know, most people, like, (laughs) go up the ranks in unrespectable projects and then use their Oscar to get personal projects and hard-to-greenlight films done. Instead, she's taken off her clothes, playing Bond girls, and putting on cat suits after winning her award. It was a strange thing. I don't know. Kibby Gooden Jr. did Snow Dogs after he got his award. <laughs> Indeed. And Lou Gossett Jr., Jaws 3, yes. I think that the rules are different, unfortunately, for black actors. I don't feel like the doors open as wide as when white actors win Oscars. And they take projects that probably, yeah, it's a big payday or it's a big commercial enterprise. But, yeah, rarely do I see them going on to greater heights. And Catwoman, well, we all know that this isn't a step up for Hallie after Monsters Ball. Because of Hallie's involvement and because I'm the comic book movie guy, this movie did rouse my curiosity back in 04. I did not even entertain the thought of seeing it in theaters, but I did rent it when it was a new release on video. And Marjorie and I sat down to watch it and I couldn't make it through. Now, Stuart, I think part of the reason I rented it is you had told me some outrageous plot points that we'll be getting into. I couldn't even stick around long enough for any of those. I turned it off halfway through, returned the movie. About six months later, it came back on HBO. I had this problem with completism, kind of what drives now playing. We must do it all. <laughs> I don't think you need to explain that to anyone. Uh, they, they've seen what we do, yes. So I did DVR and finally just go back and pick it up for the second half. And this is my first time watching it in one whole sitting, though. There's no way I was going to go to a movie theater, but I was primed to see this when this hit video. To me, this defines a movie you rent for a Friday night with a bottle of beer and some friends to heckle it. We all know I'm not a comic book person, but a trash movie lover, I am through and through. It didn't matter that this was tied into Batman or DC or any of that. To me, what I was hoping to see, and what I largely got, was a sequel to Showgirls. It is... (laughs) A ridiculous creation. The movie, let's just face it. No one needs to listen to this podcast to know that this is a disaster. I mean, this is the most blatantly obvious bad movie we've done in quite some time. It's not going to shock anyone that we're going to sharpen our claws and tear into it. But the question really remains, are we going to have a good time doing it?
it, or is this a hurtful product that will make your brain melt? That's, I think, what I'm here to determine. <laughs> but that's why I saw it so many years ago when it was on DVD. I was really hoping to see one of the worst movies of all time. You know, Stuart, I was really looking forward to coming back and watching this again. Yes, I've seen this movie before. I didn't run out to see it in the theaters, didn't rent it at the video store, but I did watch it one night. It was on TV. I'm laying in bed, and I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to watch this till I fall asleep. And for the next couple of hours, as my wife was trying to do the laundry, I kept yelling, you got to get in here and see this, <laughs> because I could not believe what I was watching. I know. And so I'm really interested to come back and revisit this and see if it was that same kind of experience, because this movie blew my mind the first time. Mm-hmm. Well, let's dive right in, Arnie. You got the plot? Well, it was like herding cats to get these 28 writers' plots into a summary, but I can try. Mousy artist Patience Phillips is a put-upon graphic designer at Hedare Beauty, constantly berated by Fat Cat CEO George Hedare, and nervous at her workplace as a cat in a room full of rocking chairs. A missed deadline has her rushing to Hedare's factory. Finding no one around, she hears voices from the basement, and that curiosity will kill the patients as she hears Laurel Hedare, George's wife and the former glamour puss face of Hedare Beauty, played by Sharon Stone. She's plotting the release of Buleine. An anti-wrinkle cream that's supposed to be the cat's pajamas in the cosmetic world. But Buleen has addictive properties, and if a woman stops using it, her face will suffer severe burns. But despite pussyfooting around, Patience has discovered eavesdropping, and Hedare security guards flush her out a drainage pipe. Dead, Patience is visited by Midnight, a feline that had been catting around Patience's apartment. The Egyptian Mao breathes life back into the girl, but now Patience has changed. Instead of the shy girl, she's now the cat's meow. She has super strength and the agility of a cat, as well as some cat-like mannerisms, such as an affinity for fish and catnip, and an aloof, confident attitude. At times, the Catwoman catitude overtakes Patience and gives in to Patience's desires, such as stealing jewelry or violently stopping a neighbor's loud party. Curious to the end, Patience finds Midnight's owner, an ex-academic cat lady, Ophelia Powers, who explains that throughout history there have been cat women, and now Patience is the next in line. Or the last. <laughs> no, no, we had Anne Hathaway. True, true. Through Ophelia, Patience realizes someone killed her, though she has no memory of that night. She smells a rat and believes George Hedare the prime suspect. But a game of cat and mouse occurs as her investigation is hampered by Detective Tom Lone, who has recently started dating patients, but is also tasked with investigating crimes committed by the Catwoman. But the true villain is revealed to be Laurel. Neglected by her cheating husband and pushed out as the face of Hedare for a younger model, Laurel's angry as a bag of cats and become addicted to Beoline and found an even more interesting side effect. Yes, if you stop using it, your face melts away, but if you keep using it, your skin turns as solid as marble. Laurel kills her husband and frames Catwoman for the crime. With the cat out of the bag that patiences the Catwoman, the feline fiend is arrested but escapes to confront Laurel. Laurel and Catwoman fight like cats and dogs, and Catwoman's diamond-tipped gloves succeed in scratching through Laurel's skin, and Laurel falls out a window to her death. Patience is cleared of all charges and released, but she cannot return to the life of Patience, choosing to cat around free as Catwoman. Man, I've been waiting since Howard the Duck to have a show full of animal puns. <laughs> <laughs> and I did not disappoint. You did not. You didn't. <laughs> 
Now, I've seen this movie before. Am I wrong? This is Crow. This is the movie The Crow, only instead of a crow, it's a cat, right? That's what they ultimately settled on. All these 25 geniuses that made umpteen million versions of the script, they finally just said, hey, you know what? If it worked for Brandon Lee, it'll work for Halle. Well, whatever doesn't kill you, wait, that didn't work out so well for Brandon. <laughs> oh, I don't know. <laughs> And what's funny is, in the trailer for this, they actually took the monologue from The Crow and replaced the word crow with cat and had Haley recite it. I thought so. So this is just verbatim. Pretty much, only without the goth makeup and replacing it with a stripper or a dominatrix outfit. Wow. She does put on some heavy black eyeliner earlier in the film. So we even got the goth makeup at one. So yeah, your instinct is completely right, but it wasn't done in the movie. I don't know if the ad people just realized it and built upon it, but... And in doing so, it was always a choice not to have Batman in it. But there's no Gotham here. I mean, they've gone for a whole different thing. This is not Selina Kyle. This is not Gotham City. There is no Cape Crusader running around. Is this even connected with anything in the DC universe at all? By name only, by title only. I mean, there's a Catwoman in the DC universe, and there's a Catwoman in this film. I would say if you're a comic book fan, that's the only connection you're going to find here. Okay, so at no point has Catwoman ever had a history connected to Egyptian temple cats that breathe people back to life. Lord, okay. (laughs) So here's the thing. I remember back in Batman Returns, we had a little bit of a debate, you know, did the cats give her CPR and give her cat powers? And I thought, yes, that's what they were trying to say. And and I thought the cats were trying to eat her. Yeah. So I, I there's a comic book podcast I listened to. They interviewed one of the 600 writers for this film. And he wrote this script that sold this to Warner Brothers and got the project going. And only a couple things that he actually wrote in there were kept. One of them was this Egyptian cat thing. And he didn't even want it. But the executives are like, no, we have to explain how she got her cat powers. And he's like, well, she's just a cat burglar. Well, no, in Batman Returns, she got her cat powers. And if we don't show her getting her cat powers in this film, people aren't going to be able to understand it. They're not going to understand how it ties to (laughs) Batman Returns. You know... Hollywood executives, everyone. And a spider must fight Superman. (laughs) Yes. So this was something that was forced upon him. And so he's like, all right, there's always been Catwoman that got magical powers from cats going back to Egypt. Sure. Because for some reason, Hollywood thought Catwoman has to have literal cat powers. Wow. I never thought that. I never thought that a feline turned her into something. I never thought of her as a supernatural being. In fact, DC's universe, by and large, feels less supernatural than Marvel's. That's only because you've seen Green Lantern and Batman. You got the Spectre, who is literally the judgment of God, the wrath of God. You got plenty of mysticism. But you compare this to Marvel, what I see here is this is a reaction to Spider-Man. The 2002 Sam Raimi film. This is two years later. I see so many parallels between this movie and Sam Raimi's Spider-Man that I can call out as we go through. And here, it's like, instead of just being a cat burglar, she had to be breathed on by a radioactive cat. Spider-Man, Catwoman, I could see why the execs would choose to go this way. Spider-Man was a huge, huge hit. Now, Jacob... We talked about, with so many characters, Green Goblin and some of the others, how in the comics they have different identities, but what I really want to know is, was Patience Phillips 
a Catwoman. We all know Selena Kyle. Are there other Catwomen, and is Patience one of them? There's been other characters that have played the role of Catwoman for short periods of time. In Dark Knight Rises, we had that blonde hair girl. I think they called her Jen in the film, but she really represented Holly Robinson, who was a friend of Selena Kyle and who took over the role for a while. So there's been other people that have filled in temporarily. Not a Patience Phillips, though. I'm willing to bet that they came to Patience when it came down to Halle. Like, Halle was the thing that made them realize they could no longer connect it to Batman Returns. I do think it's racially driven, honestly. I think that they thought that if it doesn't look like Michelle Pfeiffer, no one's going to believe it's the same character. So let's just do something entirely different. But the movie calls out in its very opening credits that there have been cat women through history. They have the ancient Egyptians. They have... The witches of Salem being burned, implying they were burning cat women. And later in the movie, in Ophelia's house, amongst the pictures of Egyptian cats and Salem witches, is a picture of Michelle Pfeiffer. Really? Yes, she is one of the previous cat women pictured on screen in Ophelia's house. I did not catch that. Mm -mm. It's not a close-up. You're probably looking at Hallie's face, but Hallie has a bunch of pictures around her, and one of them is a nice close-up of Michelle Pfeiffer in her Batman Returns get-up. Hence, this is the same universe, or it's just a funny callback. Yeah, I mean, I think that it works either way. By having it be that anyone and everyone can be Catwoman, then, you know, you can say that, yes, that other version that we saw 10 years, 15 years ago is tied to this. But I don't think they're really going for that. I mean, I don't think visually, stylistically... The only way that it reminds me of is when we finally get into Patient's life, she's a put-upon office worker, just like Selena was. You know, if you remember the Burton movie, she was secretary to Christopher Walken, long-suffering, always doing ungratifying things and being ignored. Patience is kind of the same thing, I guess. I mean, she wants to be an artist, and she's in an art department of a beauty cosmetics empire. This is my first problem with the script. She wants to be an artist. She lives in New York! Does she? Is this New York... This is some CGI monstrosity where there's factories on islands across the water. Is this New York? It is. I couldn't tell. I really couldn't tell if it was New York or Gotham or Coast City or Metropolis. Regardless, she lives in a huge metropolis. I mean, if you want to be an artist, you don't hang out in your small farm town. You go to the big city. I don't understand this. She's like gone to the big city and has no chance to be an artist, even though she's painting all day at home. I just want to know how the Catwoman helped her fulfill that dream. <laughs> she wanted to be an artist. She ends up being a crime fighter. It seems arbitrary that she wanted to be an artist. You could have equally had her want to be a writer, so she transcribes memos. I don't get it, but I understand that the need to put her into a beauty products because they're wanting to play up feminist themes. At no point are we allowed to think of Catwoman as anything but a empowered feminist, that this is supposed to be some kind of you-go-girl fantasy in which getting your cat on means <laughs> getting your dreams realized. It's ridiculous. I mean, I definitely don't understand it, but that is the constant insistence, is that this woman cannot fulfill her dreams as an average person. She needs cat breath and an ossified Sharon Stone to really make it happen for her. 
with Batman Returns, it was the 90s, you know, we were just coming upon this popularization of feminism. I could understand how clunky and how unsubtle it was in that film. I am Catwoman, hear me roar, and the mousy secretary becomes the power of feminist. Technically, they were burning their bras in the 60s. We weren't just coming upon feminism in the 90s. No, no, but I'm saying it really became, like, a big deal in the 90s. I think it had gone away in the 70s and 80s and the 90s. Feminism came back strong. Yeah. The, the talk really moved from women going back in the workplace to can women equal men in the workplace. I think the glass ceiling became the debate in those early 90s. But by 2004, I mean, this film... Catwoman taking on the makeup industry. It seems like something that came from the 90s. It's just so blatant and pandering and just, it comes off as bad and stupid. Who watches this and goes, yes, she is so empowered as a woman. That's the thing is I'm going to argue against you, Stuart. While I do think that they attempt to put themes of femininity in here, I wonder if all 28 of the writers were male because this isn't a feminist thing. This is a girly thing. This is as feminist as Barbie in a pink Corvette. You will not be arguing with me on that, but <laughs> yes, I hear what you're saying. The fact that she's taking on the beauty industry, if this was a real feminist statement, she'd be overcoming a man's world. I can't tell if this is a female superhero working at a beauty company to entice the readers of Vogue and Glamour magazine to come see a superhero film because you've got Halle Berry almost naked at times in some really body-glorifying cinematography, which I would think would turn away the womanists. And then you've also got her fighting the evil corporate empire of the beauty cream, which I think would turn away the male audience, so I don't know who the target of this is. Yes, because they're striving for a feminist message, by that I'm only stating the fact that we're not allowed to see her as a superhero. We must see her as a woman who is taking down, yes, Hadere Beauty. Now, I don't feel like it's sexist that she's being attacked in this environment. This is a really catty, obnoxious, high-pressure <laughs> environment, and she's being attacked because that's what people do. I said this shade of red, well, I meant this shade of red. I really don't feel like what she is suffering from is gender politics. I don't either. I was getting shades, and I think this might have been on TV by the time I was watching this, but I was really thinking of Ugly Betty which was a show I watched on TV about a fashion magazine where you had this dowdy, mousy girl. And that's kind of what is going on here. Because how does a woman whose fashion is made fun of, whose hair is made fun of, who has no style, become the graphic designer for a beauty company? Devil Wear Prada. I mean, th there have been other ones, but yes, this was on the cusp of some kind of trend. But I again, I go back to Showgirls. To me, this feels like... Nomi Lump Malone striking out to find her dreams and, you know, fantasizing that she could not just be a cocktail waitress, but be there up on the screen flashing her tits. <laughs> what a boss she has. That George Hedare, he is just written out to be so villainous. Now, I went into this the very first time back in 05 or whenever with one strike against me because you had spoiled me, Stuart, telling me Sharon Stone was the villain. but. 
George Hedare is just written so evil. He's cheating on his wife and has been since they got married. He is ripping patients a new one repeatedly. He comes off to me like the father from the Twisted Sister videos in the 80s. He's a ridiculous character. I think it's a struggle in this movie for people to know how to play these parts. I'd like to believe most of them know that the movie that they're in is terrible. I'm not sure Hallie does, but everyone else seems to grasp that. Watching them maneuver that is actually the fun of this movie. Lambert Wilson, the actor you're talking about playing George Adair, just goes big. You know, he probably asked for a mustache to twirl. He really just goes for an absurd, garishly cartoonish figure to play the sniveling boss. And then we've got the real villain, Sharon Stone, in these scenes. Now, there are some cutscenes. In the scene that's in the movie, you see her defending patients and telling George she's a good designer, give her another chance. There's even more scenes of them, like, buddying up and Sharon Stone being the one rooting for her and kind of explaining maybe she got the job because Sharon Stone either pities her or is mentoring her or something. There's even a throwaway line when they're rolling around the floor attacking each other that implies that she might have a thing for her. I mean, they're playing with this as much as they can. Again, showgirls. This is the Gina Gershon role. And Sharon Stone, welcome back to Now Playing. I haven't seen you since Total Recall, but I've always kind of liked Sharon Stone, even though she's never been in a movie where she's actually ever been given a chance to be good. And this is no exception, but she knows how to play camp. And I would say out of all the actors in this movie, she is the only one that seems to understand the movie that she's in and is doing a good job. Oh, no, no. I love watching Sharon Stone in this movie. She's hilarious. I agree she's hilarious, but I don't agree she's doing a good job. I think that her performance is stone in this. Not just her skin, but her eyes, her lines thud like marble. You mentioned George Hedare really camping it up. Sharon Stone seems to be acting like she is in any of a million other movies. I do not get fun from her performance at all. She knows. When Lambert Wilson slaps her face and breaks his hand and she gives that grin, she knows exactly the kind of movie that she's in. She does. Yeah, but that doesn't come for a while. I agree, Artie, at the beginning she's pretty bland. It's when you realize that she's the villain of this, that's when I start having fun with her. It does take a while to get there, but I do think a lot of people in this film know what kind of movie they're in, except like the two leads. (laughs) By the two leads, do you mean Sharon Stone, or do you mean, like, Benjamin Bratt? Benjamin Bratt. Yeah. Benjamin Bratt. (laughs) (laughs) He's my favorite, actually, in all of this. He's just not cool. You just imagine him talking shop at some Hollywood place, like, oh, yeah, I'm in this new movie with Halle Berry and Sharon Stone. Big action movie. Big, big budget. Oh, yeah, what is it? (laughs) Uh, You know, it's like, it's it's a camp. What? What? I'm sorry, Ben. Speak up. I can't hear you. You know, no man wants to be the boyfriend in the Catwoman movie. This is a sad part for a sad man who is just bland enough to be cast in this, but to have no real personality. But this is his second time doing it. He was also the bland boyfriend of Sandra Bullock in Miss Congeniality. (laughs) 
Oh, didn't see that one. I think he had to do it with Madonna, too. It's Yeah, this guy's had nothing but a career of, yes, being that guy. And, you know, I can just imagine him in the mirror being like, am I not good looking enough? Can I, like, get a part worthy of my own? Like, why can't I be, like, the star? But he is. He's perpetually, like, that guy. And in this movie, wow, he sure doesn't know what to do. It's really fun watching him try to date patience in this movie. The funny thing is, I actually knew him even before Miss Congeniality as the more bland detective in Law and Order. He's constantly playing a bland law enforcement official. I was really getting, God help us all, Electra flashbacks as I watched this. I mean, Hollywood doesn't seem to know how to write a couple in love or whatever when it's a strong female. I, I was thinking Electra and you got this bland boyfriend. They just can't get the balance right, you know? If the woman's strong, then the man must come off as weak or something. And, and I was really getting that feeling here is that if we're going to have this strong woman, yeah, he's a cop, but he's not going to do much. Well, at this point, we've done two-thirds of the female superhero oeuvre. The only one left for us is Supergirl. So... I did see a lot of parallels between this and Electra, which came out a year later. And yeah, it is a problem where if you want to have a strong woman, you don't want her to have to have superpowers to be the equal of a man. I understand that. But by the same token, this makes the man just come off as incompetent and it really neuters these characters in a bad way. It would take deft writing, which neither of the movies we're discussing have, in order to create a strong male character and a stronger super female character. They give him this masculine name, Tom Lone. He's this hard-boiled detective and all, but like at no point do we think he's good at his job. I mean, every time he makes a conclusion, he is wrong. Right from the get-go, he's you know <laughs> pulling over, he's seeing patients standing on top of an AC unit on the 8th floor of a building and wobbling, and he thinks that she's going to jump and is trying to tell her, how much she has to live for. This is how this relationship starts. You are right. Everything he does is wrong, except he's the one who figures out Catwoman is patience. That is his one shining moment. No, it's like forever for him to do that. Throughout the course of this, he is going to be taking her on dates. She's like cramming down sushi. He's got jeweled claws finding on the floor. He can't even do handwriting analysis himself when it's the most blatant same handwriting in the world. He's got to take it to his CSI lab so they can get computers <laughs> to analyze it. Yeah, this is no good. It is a no fun part that he is having no fun playing. And I absolutely love watching Benjamin Brad in this. Stone and Brad are my ends in this because Miss Halle Berry does not get the joke. But I want to give Hallie some props here, okay? You're giving props to these other people who I hated. But you keep dissing my girl Hallie, who I really admire in this film. <laughs> Even when she's mashing catnip into her face? Especially when she's mashing catnip into her face. Because, goddamn, does it take a good actress, an Oscar-winning actress, who's been in the game for years and years, to leave all that ego at the door and commit herself to such an asinine performance. She does not look reserved. She does not look like she is 
realizing this is stupid and she just doesn't want to go there. We have seen performances where the people are just walking on and clunking their lines and leaving because they don't want to look foolish. She has no fear here. This is a fearless feline who will give it all and get a Razzie for it. I don't know if admiration is what I feel towards her, but you're right, Arnie. She does give it her all. I don't know if that's genius or incredibly stupid. I am fascinated by what she does with this material. Yeah, she's acting like she's not in Catwoman. She's acting like she's in Monster's Ball of Yarn. (laughs) (laughs) What you are praising her for is what I think makes it so tragic. The fact that she did not make the click. The fact that she did not recognize camp. The fact that she would study cat movements and be walking around on a back of a couch probably so proud that she and her trainer spent two weeks choreographing this catwalk. <laughs> and at no point did she turn to the director and be like, Pitoff, what are you trying to do to me? Actually, she turned to the director. I watched her entire Razzie speech. It's on YouTube. It's better than this movie. She gives her all at the Razzies, too. She comes out Oscar in one hand, Razzie in the other, and gives a funny eight-minute performance. But... She thanks Pitoff for being there, though she couldn't understand a word he said. <laughs> I think Sigourney Weaver had the same problem on Alien Resurrection, if memory serves. But yes, something about like the Frenchman. You know, I'm sure Pitoff just thought it was hilarious. Oh, yes, we get you in the leather and the whatever. I mean, all right, let's just get into it. I mean, we can talk about her work habits and her friends and all that. But let's just get to this. What basically happens is that Hallie uncovers it's just a conspiracy at that point. She happens to be bringing in her assignment that she screwed up. So she has to take it to a chemical production factory, <laughs> like Axis Labs from Batman 89. That's where she has to take her art. And it has to be there by midnight. There's, like, gonna be someone there to start making the plates to print the boxes at midnight. <laughs> I mean, if it's a graphic design, it should be on a computer, and they could change the color with a click of a mouse. But whatever. <laughs> this is the setup. She walks in, she finds out that the scientist that created Buleen is having some reservations. Yeah, he's okay with the fact that it turns women into crack whores and that they like <laughs> just become addicted to it. But if they should happen to kick the habit, their face rots off. And I mean like third degree burns and like Crypt Keeper. Yeah. Perhaps they were trying to set up a sequel which would feature a female Two-Face based on this. <laughs> I don't even know that she would have had time to process even what she's seeing by the time that the henchmen turn on her. She's running down some pipes. She just gets flushed out. I think this is sewage. Oh, I yes. I think she is flushed like a dead fish. I mean, I don't know. It's a factory where they make chemicals. I don't know why they have this big Indiana Jones of the Temple of Doom ejaculate of water pipe there. I don't know why that would be in New York. But nonetheless, that is what happens. She is chased by security, who must also be in on the conspiracy and willing to kill for the beautician. And chase patients down. All right. So, you know what? I'm accepting all of this. It's garbage. Really? No, no, no. I'm accepting all of it so that I can come to the greater failures, which is, all right, this is your terrible premise. She washes up literally in a garbage heap, and the cats 
which they lie in some bonus material that I watched on this disc. They're like, yeah, all of this that you're seeing is real cats doing all of this. We trained that. Oh, bull crap. <laughs> that was the most obvious CGI cat. I mean, there is no way. I mean, maybe there were like some real cats like on the set and they photographed them. <laughs> but what I see walking around on her and breathing on her face, not real cats. But because she does this, because she has this magical experience with Midnight, the same cat that made her get up on that AC unit the previous morning, and because she risked her life for that cat, that cat thought that she was worthy enough or maybe stupid enough to (laughs) go where she's going to go, which is to put on this ridiculous outfit and be the next in a long line of Egyptian jewel thieves. Catwoman. Am I the only one who thought back to Drew Barrymore in Cat's Eye when the cat is breathing into her mouth? Because in that movie, the cat was stealing Drew Barrymore's breath, or the troll was, but they thought it was the cat. There has always been an urban myth, and I think it did come from Cat's Eye. It was probably the first time I heard it, but that cats steal your breath, that they actually take your life when you're in your sleep. I've never heard that cats can give it back to you with a (laughs) face plant. And I do love that, yes, the cat was testing her worthiness. What were they testing? Do you love cats? Will you come out here for a cat? Do you have no shame? I think that's <laughs> really what it comes down to. Are you dumb enough to climb up on this rickety-ass AC unit for a cat that's not even yours? <laughs> what I had to wonder was, you know, we see Hallie. She's lying in the sludge covered in what I'm assuming is shit. <laughs> Cats breathe their halitosis all over her. She goes back to her apartment. She's totally clean. Has she already used her cat powers to lick herself clean? Did she lick the shit off of herself? This is what I'm wondering. And it seems like a good metaphor for this film. Yeah. We do see one minute when she gets back to her apartment, she sees a reflection. She's still shit covered. So, no, she didn't lick herself clean. But then they cut. Next morning, she wakes up on one of her own shelves, and she doesn't know how she got there and how she got clean. So who knows? But from this point on, her life has changed. She is two people in one. And that's the thing that gets to me is, again, looking at this as female empowerment, the way this story comes off, it's almost more Jekyll and Hyde. Where really, in the shit pipe, Patience did die, and her body lives on with a new spirit inside, because... We even got bad voiceover to tell us that literally happened. Because <laughs> she is not really Patience. Maybe the Catwoman woke up, you know, like Spider-Man in the black suit, and was like, I am not staying covered in this shit, I'm getting in a shower. But yes, she now has powers? I never knew Catwoman to have powers, but she can leap a story high or more. She has super sight. Is it super? She sees seagulls getting in her face. She paws at a spider. I don't really know what Cat Vision does. (laughs) Her eyes go all slitted, but that's about it. Kung Fu! Of course, she knows Kung Fu now. Just like all cats. (laughs) She always lands on her feet. It's a weird bevy of powers, but... They come in real handy on the basketball court because Benjamin Bratt asked her out. She stood him up because she was hung over from the shitstorm. She's making it up to him by visiting him at a school where I don't know what cops do at school other than search lockers for drugs, but he's there like 
don't be a bad guy, now let's play basketball. Yeah, the kids bait them into doing a little one-on-one, and she's sorry that she blew him off on the dates, you know, after their whole misunderstanding, they had this date arranged. This is their first date. Can you imagine? This is your first date, and this woman is, like, leaping from one side of the court to the other, flipping (laughs) upside down. That's not even interference at that point. That is just ridiculous. No one can play basketball like this. (laughs) But nobody even shoots. Nobody makes a shot. This whole thing is like a music video. Again, an En Vogue music video. But if you look, they, like, show her dribbling. They show her jumping off walls. But nobody is shooting the ball. She's just playing keep away. What I really love is when they start freaking in front of the school kids. Like, she's grinding up against him, feeling his abs. I'm like, wow. And there's a bunch of 10-year-olds around him. And there's like a 30-second shot of her ass in this basketball game. She's not playing basketball. She's jiggling the gadunkadunk. This is Pitoff, I'm telling you. You put a French stylist at the helm of a film like this, and that's what he's going to focus on. That is what he cares about. From what I understand, the first cut of this movie he turned in, they went even further with this, that this movie was really barely even any action, and that they went back for drastic reshoots, because most of the things that he showed was not highly in action, doing kung fu and all that. It really was just exactly watching her ass. (laughs) But this first date was taking me back to one year earlier... This isn't much different than Daredevil and Electra on the playground. Well, I'm glad you're not the only one that saw that. I was getting flash. You know, when your flashbacks are Daredevil and Electra, we're in a bad place. I do feel like this was coming out right around the same time. I think it's a, a year later after Daredevil. It suffers not only from, yes, this kind of stuff. But when she moves later, you know, in the CGI and all that, it was just a bad time for the superhero movies. The effects were too good for them to think that they couldn't do it, but bad enough for them to end up looking the way they are. And this is the first of many very poorly choreographed, quote-unquote, action scenes. Yeah, and anytime they go to CGI Halley... It is bad. We complained about some CGI in Spider-Man and Spider-Man 2, but my god, it is heads and tails above this. This is back with Ben Affleck as CGI Daredevil in just the depths of shit. Yeah. But she has to go ahead and quit her job and tell off George Hedare. Yeah, let me try the remix. <laughs> because this, she's black, so we gotta make it urban. Yeah, I definitely think that that is a line that Michelle Pfeiffer, Ashley Judd, or Nicole Kidman would never be asked to say. But no, we got Holly, so we gotta make her all like that. There's a lot of embarrassing things that she has to do here. Hissing at dogs, eyeing jewelry, she's got this obnoxious friend. Oh, I love her friend. You know who that is, right? I knew her from Mad TV days, but that's the voice of Lois from Family Guy. And I thought here, again, another character giving her all. I do not know what that portrayal is. I think perhaps the role was originally written for Jack Black and they changed it up. But she is just hysterical in every scene. Unintentionally hysterical, but hysterical. She gives it her all to be the sex-crazed fat girl in this film. Yeah. Man sandwich, 12 o'clock. And there was only one guy. Isn't a man sandwich when there's two guys? Takes two pieces of bread to make a sandwich. 
Yep. That's basically every joke that Sally tells in this movie is something about being served. You know, it is just kind of uncomfortable. I love it best when she's in a hospital gown (laughs) sitting at the nurse's station talking about getting laid. Yeah, I'm queasy. I've known a few Sallys in my life, and this is just not a great part of the movie for me. (laughs) Her role here not only is to support Hallie as she becomes the Catwoman, but really she's also the one first addicted and affected by Buleen. We find out that she, even though it hasn't gone into production yet, she has managed to get the first sample of the beauty cream that they're about to launch that is going to melt everyone's face off. And it's hilarious. Like, she'll swab some on her and goes, I just love this stuff. And like, two seconds later, she'll be like, ooh, I had the worst headache. And like, not make a connection. (laughs) Like, like Benjamin Bratt, no one is able to connect A to B. And her face doesn't melt off, even though she's been using Bioline. Telling you, she's two-faced in the sequel. (laughs) I would so go in theaters to see that sequel. The next scene, though, is where I turned it off. The party scene. It was where Hallie finally cats out. She's in her pajamas, turning off a loud party that's been bothering her across the road. It was what I just could take no more the first time. She's walking down, like, a bar. This guy's apartment has a wet bar in it. And I think maybe Pitoff didn't speak right English because he didn't say walk like a cat. He said, act like you're on a catwalk. <laughs> I swear her hips, the sway of her hips have to be CGI'd in this film. There are not <laughs> hips that move like this. No, you're absolutely right. Hips don't lie, Jacob. Hips don't lie. <laughs> My favorite part is she takes the Wonder Bar and turns it into her whip. She's like, oh, this is the inspiration for my costume. And she hoses down the speakers and proceeds to then go to her emergency dating kit, the one that Sally gave her that she swore she'd never wear, leather up. Sally and the flamboyantly gay co-office worker who gets, like, one line. Artie, did you turn this off before you got to see Hallie give herself a haircut? I did. I couldn't go any further. And so it wasn't for months later that I got to see her, first of all, Yes, break out two pairs of scissors. <laughs> two fists of scissors. I am surprised she did not take an eye out with that haircut. <laughs> How do you pull the hair to cut it? But yeah, she gets the sexy haircut and lipstick, and then she does what Catwoman should do. She goes to steal jewelry. Time to accessorize. <laughs> And somebody else is stealing it first. This is kind of where I thought a Catwoman movie would go. Anti-hero Catwoman. Stopping criminals, but kind of being a criminal. I'm willing to bet that this is one of the scenes that was controversial and they rewrote. You know, they set up that she saw this necklace in a store display and that she wanted it. It would make sense that as now as Catwoman, she goes to steal it. But you could hear the suits and the executives kind of hand-wringing, being like, well, we can't have her be a thief. That wouldn't be right. So we'll have other thieves stealing, and she stops them. This feels like a compromise scene. I agree. It feels very much walking, you know, that tightrope of she's supposed to be a criminal, but also a hero, but we are trying to not put a bad role model out there, so it becomes this weird middle thing. And she starts, like, climbing the wall. This is where I started to think Spider-Man again. She's climbing up walls vertically. I don't think cats can do that. I get that cats are agile. Like, they land on their feet. They got spines that could, are real bendy. 
They don't climb straight up walls. They don't have little gluey hairs on their palms that let them climb like a spider. This is ridiculous. It's entertaining to watch, but it's ridiculous. And, of course, she gives the jewelry back the next morning. She feels bad about it because when she wakes up, she's patient. It's almost like a night and day thing, like a werewolf or something. This is where I went to Jekyll and Hyde, and it's like the Catwoman persona is taking over more and more. Is she being empowered or is she being possessed. To me, this is coming across as like some fantasy. What we eventually learn when she gets connected with Ophelia is that Catwomen live outside of society. So whatever the rules of society are, they break them. That is what she is impelled to do. See, when I go back to the feminism thing here, it's this, I'm going to control my sexuality. I could be a strong female, but I could also be a whore, too. And I could flaunt it. And that's what this Catwoman seems like it wants to be. It wants to be its own thing and everything at the same time. It wants to be able to define itself and do whatever it wants and give meaning to it and not be... Find, like you said, Stuart, by society's definitions. It almost feels, uh, this Ophelia f- feels very Wiccan to me, which, it, of course, is another big thing with certain branches of feminism, this whole goddess and Mother Earth movement. It's a little Keaton Batman as well, too. I mean, he was split, but the personalities weren't that different. I mean, Keaton's Bruce Wayne wasn't much more animated than Keaton's Batman, but they did a lot of lip service to the fact that he was one way in the suit and another way as his public persona. I mean, on some level, they're just vaguely trying to stay connected to that DC universe, but it's barely there. To me, this feels more like a Halloween-themed version of Sex and the City or something. Like, now Carrie's putting on the cat mask and hitting up the town. And finally, she goes to see Ophelia Powers, who, if they didn't offer to back a truck of money up to get Michelle Pfeiffer in this role, they made a mistake. What I heard was that they wanted to go with Julie Newmar, the original Catwoman from the Batman 66, but I don't think she could physically do it. Well, hell, go Eartha Kitt. She did the bonus features on the DVD. and I just got to wonder what university of... Ophelia taught at, where she was there for 20 years until she was denied tenure by male academia. Academia is more female than male in the 90s. That I'm just going to say that's what I personally experienced. There's more, yes, more females than males, but again, lip service to feminism here. Maybe she was denied tenure 20 years ago and it just stuck around in that house forever since then. This is another character where I wish I could enjoy the performance more than I do. I don't quite get Ophelia's powers role here. She's not the sensei who's going to train Hallie and... Arnie, it's called exposition. (laughs) That's her role here. Yeah. Because if you didn't get it from the big cat opening credits, they're going to review it all over again here. Including the same shots. It's almost like the credits were built just out of extras from this. I agree with you. You'd think that Ophelia would play a larger role now, that once Hallie comes to understand that she is now this new creature, she'd want to hone that and refine that, and that this would be the woman to help her do that. But no, it's really Midnight. It's really this cat, this Egyptian Mao, that is her sidekick, and she really doesn't learn anything from this crazy cat lady. Indeed, we don't think there is anything to learn from her. She seems nuts. And she only goes there after she already Googled cats in history. You're getting pretty desperate when you're looking at cat tags and just Googling cats (laughs) to find out what's going on. I don't know if the whole Iken has cheeseburger thing was going on at this point on the internet, but man, I would have loved to see Iken has cheeseburger reference with Halle Berry here. (laughs) 
She's I can has tuna. Yes. And I can has catnip. In Showgirls, it was funny enough that the girls talked about eating dog food. Here, we actually see Hallie do it. She's actually eating tuna right out of the can. I mean, there's no dignity in this part. And you would think that any actress, particularly an actress that had been working in Hollywood for well over a decade, she would know and would have the clout to be able to make this stop. I have to believe that Hallie just didn't have any involvement in where this story was going and just said okay to every stupid idea that came her way. It looks that way to me. Does that include the outfit she finally gets? <laughs> she wears several outfits because she has one outfit that she puts on after the haircut and she, that has like the more classical cat woman mask from the 60s. It's just basically makeup around her eyes. Well, Ophelia gives her the mask. She's like, that's the thing that tops it off. She was wearing like a little party mask, but now, you know, it looks kind of like a mouseketeer thing, you know, like this full (laughs) headdress to complete the look. And I think it's the same leather outfit. She just took more snips to it. This is the full bloom of the costume we watched evolve over these whole sequences. And it's a good look. There is nobody in the world that would put this on to fight corporate crime. There is no way that this functions in any way other than titillation. I don't even think it works for titillation. I'm sorry. This is not sexy. Yes, it is. This is... Oh, no, Yeah, come on. Come on. Didn't even get a half chub during it. Well, I'm not going to get a half chub of a superhero film anyway, but I can appreciate the female feline figure here. The suit does nothing to enhance what she already has. Actually, it does. She's not... No. Yeah. I, I don't need to see little ass cutouts in her leather chaps here. I just don't think it's a sexy outfit, and that's a bad thing for Catwoman. I think it's a very sexy outfit. I am down with this outfit. I do want to know, she returned the jewels she stole, right? Hence the bag with sorry written on it. Yeah. Then where'd she get the diamond-tipped gloves? She kept a few. (laughs) So she wasn't that sorry. That's how I took it. She felt bad, (laughs) yeah, but not that bad. I'm sure there's a draft or five where it's fully explained how she got the jewels on her gloves, but it doesn't even matter. At this point, when we see it, and it's a shot they do twice, they do the exact same thing at the end, but we see her, like, yes, CGI-enhanced swagger as she's walking along a rooftop. This movie has now fully announced that it has no intentions of being anything other than a tease, a sex tease. You say what you want about feminism and empowerment. This is an exploitation movie. This is a movie in which women, quote-unquote, fight oppression, but really are degrading themselves for our entertainment. All right, I I hate to not have fun for a few minutes, but I'm going to have to cry bullshit on your statement there because there is another brand of feminism, a 21st century feminism, where it's okay to be sexy, it's okay to be beautiful, as long as you own it, as long as you are in control and you are not being used and you are the one who's out in it for yourself. As long as you're not an object of male desire, but you're just enjoying the power sexuality gives you, that is a form of modern feminism that I think is being shown here. Admittedly, the costume designer was like, how much cleavage can we show the guys in the audience and still get away with it? But as portrayed in this film, she's not dressing this way for Benjamin Bratt. She's dressing this way for her, and that is still a feminist ideal. 
I don't feel like this is a logical extension of what we see from the patient Phillips slash Catwoman character. I don't feel like this costume evolved to this. When it was just full-on leather, that worked fine. I feel like this is Hollywood saying, this is a superhero film. Guys are going to come and see this. Let's give them what they want. This is what's going to get them in the theater for a female-centric superhero film. I'm going to blame Peach off. I really feel like this is a <laughs> Frenchman's idea of what a Catwoman should be. I really feel like he was treating her like a paper doll, and you can say what you want about this is the character's sexuality. To me, this feels like a director making an Oscar-winning actress put on a degrading Playboy mansion-type outfit and say, strut. No girl would be caught dead at Playboy wearing this much clothing. (laughs) But I do want to know that whip, was that part of the emergency dating kit? No, she took the Wonder Bar from that bar. She whipped it around. Like, that was the thing that made her decide she needed to get a whip. Now, did she stop off at Sporting Goods or something? I don't know. (laughs) That's what I'm saying, is where the actual bullwhip come from. Because if I suddenly became imbued with magical cat powers, I wouldn't know where to go get a whip. I'd have the uh, (laughs) Amazon.com. Particularly one that long. At some point, it's about 30 feet long. I mean, (laughs) depending on how the CGI artists want to film the scene, I mean, it gets to ridiculous proportions. But no more ridiculous than the proportions of this entire thing. I'll say it again. At this point in the movie, when she's walking down the alley or whatever, like, okay, we have now just confessed all. This is not a superhero movie at all. This is a stripper movie. This is Showgirls. If you say so, I... Don't see this as a stripper movie. I see it as a movie that's confused, but... Okay, well, let's look. This is the point of the story where she decides that she is going to find the people that killed her. And what does she do? She goes to a nightclub and starts doing the pole. (laughs) Ordering a white Russian, hold the Kahlua, hold the vodka, cream straight up. Oh, my God. Dripping off her mouth. Yes. (laughs) When she drinks it, I was like... Oh, I hope she has a milk mustache. And sure enough, I was just so pleased. I don't think that there's a cat cliche that they don't go for. But come on, tell me, this is not how you would strike back at the person that tried to kill you. This is the point where the movie becomes very muddled story-wise. Because this is where, like, Benjamin Bratt is sleeping with her while investigating her. And we finally find out George is not the one behind Buleen, but it is Laurel. And Catwoman and Laurel have their first confrontation in her house. Meanwhile, he's going to the opera with his girl. It's a lot going on in the next, like, 15 minutes that I can't really explain. I mean, there's a whole Ferris wheel scene where Patience is saving kids and Tom still can't figure it out that she's agile like a cat. Like, it never comes up again. She's leaping around an exploding Ferris wheel and he still does not put it together. They have handwriting samples. She looks the same in the outfit. The haircut is the same. It is painful to me. All I can think of is Tom Lone wants to get laid. Like, that's the only (laughs) thing that makes sense. How hard up is this man for sex? She's sitting there, like, devouring all the sashimi in front of his face. I feel like she could cough up a hairball onto his dessert and he'd still be like, your place of mine. (laughs) That's the thing. He bangs her eventually. He sees her naked and seeing Catwoman isn't much different than seeing patients naked. Still doesn't put it together. He's already done the handwriting analysis at that point, too. 
So I'm he, surprised she didn't go over to the sandbox and take a shit. I mean, she's doing everything that a cat would, like, and he is just blindly ignoring it. I believe he knows, and he just wants to have sex, because once he finally has sex, he then takes the glass in for analysis, and then he's then ready to prosecute. But not until that point. Up until that point, it is clawing him in the face, and he refuses to acknowledge that it's the same woman. So we get to a point where Catwoman goes after Hedare at a ballet or something where they're swinging around. <laughs> it's so bad that they're happy when Catwoman gets up on stage. People start <laughs> applauding. Yes, they start cheering. Oh, thank God, something's happening. I think it's like a Cirque du Soleil thing, but like a really <laughs> lame one in which people are just like in really long flowing moo-moos lifted up and down on a string. And again, I'm loving Hallie's performance as the Frady Cat on stage, scared of all these flying birds. You think she'd be clawing at him? Don't cats like things on strings? I thought she totally should have gone Michelle Pfeiffer and put a bird in her mouth at some point in this film. (laughs) So she faces off with Tom, licks him, or kisses him, and that's how he figures out she's Catwoman. He does lip analysis? Are lips like fingerprints? Can you line those up and match them? I've never heard of that, but I'm not up on my CSI. It's hardly the most ludicrous thing that they put on it. I don't know why they would have taken that from his face, like that he would have to go in and have photographs made of the lip imprint made on his cheek so that he could then take the glass and make the same 99.9% match. I don't know. It's ridiculous. And this is like an hour after the handwriting. Yeah. <laughs> and again, he doesn't figure it out. Some machine does. Like I said, he knew all along. He had to know all along. He just wasn't going to put her in behind bars before he finally got the third base. And he arrests her. I guess the cat agility didn't serve her well in bed because he, he has turned a blind eye thus far. I've never had sex with a cat, so I don't know if they're good or bad. Apparently bad, though. <laughs> when they're bad, they're as bad as they want to be. <laughs> Meanwhile, as Hallie is becoming more and more feline, Sharon Stone is becoming more and more hard to break. I mean, we've seen several scenes in which she has had to step down from being the face of Hader and watch a new model replace her both on the posters and in the bedroom with her husband. And, you know, she smashes a glass and the shards don't cut her and he slaps her face and breaks his palm. Like, all this stuff is hilarious. I wish that they took it one step further. Don't you kind of wish that they, like, actually made CGI Sharon at the end of this and she literally was a stone or something like that? Like Mecha Sharon? Exactly. (laughs) I mean, they're so close to it. I'm like, why not go full on? Why not turn her into a big beastie for this final battle? Because, yes, eventually, of course, Catwoman is going to escape and we have to have the Russ Meyer cat fight that we've been promised. I mean, it wouldn't be satisfying if it didn't become about two women going at it. But what is Sharon Stone's plot? Like, why is she an evil to be stopped? If you know that the product you're putting out is going to melt off the face of every woman that uses it, I don't see dollar signs. I see class action law. (laughs) I don't see getting out of jail, frankly. Like, I don't know why she would want other women to have this power. I mean, it's absolutely absurd, and I agree. I don't know what the plot is. I don't get that they're having money problems where Buleen needs to save the company. Right. They seem to be doing pretty damn well. I don't see Buleen as revenge against her husband. I don't know why Buleen is so damn important. It's important to her, because if she stops using it, her face will melt. Okay. Well, 
keep a lifetime supply, stop your employees from using it before they sue you, and call it a day. But then she starts murdering people. I mean, I just remember when I first saw this, and the big reveal is that Sharon Stone is actually Stone. As crazy <laughs> as this film has been, this is your big twist? This is your big villain? A rock lady made from makeup? <laughs> it's confounding. Like, it would take 30 writers to come up with this idea. It's not surprising that this was the second to last depot on the Sharon Stone fame train. I mean, after this, she did Basic Instinct 2, and I don't know what she's been doing since. I mean, this is like last time probably anyone even noticed her. It, it is on the way out. And how humiliating that she's got to play a parody of her former sex pot self. I'm like, yeah, you're kind of sexy, but you've actually like turned into this Medusa-like rock because <laughs> you try to be so vain. You're going to love it. It's painful. But again, I applaud Sharon. I enjoy her in this movie. I think she's having fun. She has a smile on her face. I think she gets it in the same way that Gina Gershon got it. And I don't think Hallie got it the same way that Elizabeth Berkley didn't get it in Showgirls. I have a lot more fun watching Hallie's performance. Maybe she's not in on the joke, but again, because it's so earnest and so almost naive. That she yes. thinks, I mean, again, she's been in Hollywood for a long time. You compare it to Elizabeth Berkley. Elizabeth Berkley had never been off the Save by the Bell set before. She thought this was her rise to fame. She was working with the director of RoboCop. Hallie should have known better. <laughs> agreed, agreed. She's been in the game so long, she actually played a character named Rosetta Stone in the Flintstones movie. <laughs> That's right. How odd that it's come to this. <laughs> She's fighting Stone. But yes, Sharon Stone has had to kill people along the way. The scientist that developed the cream was going to be a whistleblower, so she had to kill him. She framed Catwoman. And then, you know, her husband, I think it really was because of the model that she was jealous. She kills him. She frames Catwoman. Uh, it's not really clear, but we're to understand that she's willing to murder anyone that crosses her. And she thinks she can blame Catwoman on that. Finally, Tom Lone comes to her. He's asked to trust patient, and so he goes on her hunch that Laurel is the real killer, and she pulls a gun on him, and Catwoman comes in, and we finally get the battle. And what a fight this is. It's basically CGI Hallie dancing around, real Hallie vamping, and Sharon Stone, like, pulling out fire extinguishers and just standing there. I don't know that she even gets a good hit in. No, Sharon Stone can't fight. She can just take a punch. So it's constantly watching the feral <laughs> Mouseketeer <laughs> attack the marble face. It's just like, pong, pong, Pong. I mean, like, I could watch it for hours. This is an endless joy to me. This climax is beyond camp. Great one-liners like, game over. It's overtime. <laughs> oh, that one. That felt like somebody had written it for Wesley Snipes in a different movie, <laughs> and they just kept it. Blade. Yeah, yeah it does. Blade, Passenger 57. You imagine getting passed down throughout the scripts of history. Stigall said, I'm not saying it. <laughs> then they tried it on Wesley. Van Damme was like, no. And finally, finally, the writer got it in, and it stuck. Even Dennis Rodman was like, no, no, not doing it. <laughs> Hallie will do it. I think that's what we're learning here, is Hallie is willing to do it. She is unpretentious, and she is committed. Is she able to injure Sharon Stone because Diamond can cut marble? Is that the trick there? Don't ask me about the science, but yeah, it is a, the hardest kind of rock, so it would be 
able to... Yeah, I'll go with it. It would be able to scratch it. I don't know if he could <laughs> dig into it the way she does. Yeah, it scratches it enough that Sharon realizes she's never going to be beautiful again. I think that's the takeaway here, that she's going to put all the cream on she wants, but she's never going to be able to have that face back. And does she let go? Does she intentionally? No, she falls, but she should let go. She should see herself and be like... I'm ugly, and now I want to die. But instead, she sees herself. She then reaches to Hallie for help and slips. And then a dummy falls about 50 stories. <laughs> it's a great dummy. I, my <laughs> only regret is that it doesn't shatter when it hits the bottom. <laughs> that, it should have. Yeah, I mean, rocks break when you drop them a long ways. I guess their CGI budget had run out. They had put so much into Hallie's hips by this point. Or she should have just gotten up. She's marble. Why would a fall hurt? Well, her insides might have been broken up. I don't think it turns her lungs or fart and spleen into marble, unless she's swallowing it. <laughs> and then we get the end, which this is where Spider-Man 2 just hit me in the face. Because we end with the CGI Catwoman going through the city as a Halle Berry monologue spews on. And I'm like, they really think that they're just doing the Spider-Man ending here with the CGI Spider-Man, right? This is Tobey Maguire swinging on the flagpole. I didn't think about that movie once watching this, but yeah, you're obviously right. That was a popular movie at the time they'd want to have emulated. And yes, if a man can become more like a spider, then this woman can be more like a cat. Yeah, I see it now, but this ending was surprising. There's two endings. There's actually an alternate ending on the disc, one that she ended up with Brad. I'm surprised that they went this way for the theatrical cut. It's illogical that she would end up with Brad. Otherwise, what's the purpose of Brad? I mean, Brad has been shadowed on this whole movie. Well, he was also sat on, so he, he wasn't <laughs> completely out in the cold. He finally trusted her and risked his profession and in some weird way helped bust the criminal a little bit and is rewarded with it by being left again at a coffee shop alone. I felt bad for Brad. He really is the unsung hero and the victim. I think you're the only one who felt bad for Brad because... I also saw this alternate ending, and I'm betting test audiences are just like, she cannot end up with that loser. <laughs> she, she is Catwoman. Hear her roar with a good man. This guy needs to go. He's not coming back in the sequel. It's not a happy ending if she ends up with this pussy-whipped, horny cop. Yeah, the original ending is much more tame, much more mundane. I also wonder if maybe if it wasn't a test audience thing, they're like, we need to end like Spider-Man. Do a CGI cat scene. But yeah, she's painting a mural, which at least fulfills the artist bit. Now that she doesn't have to work a nine to five, she can paint the side of the school where Brat teaches basketball. Still confused with that relationship. And her friend Alex is there. She actually has it better off in the theatrical ending because she got that hot doctor in the theatrical ending. But in this, in this one, she's just helping hold the paintbrush. Her journey begins and ends with the raspberry, yes. I don't know that anyone, by the time this was coming out, really thought there would be another one. I, obviously, they always end superhero movies with the idea that this is only the start of an ongoing saga, but they had to know, right? This was a well-known train wreck coming down the pike. I mean, at the time, they were supposed to put this out in IMAX, and then they scrapped the idea. They really just barely released this film. I mean, there was no attempt to try and make this a hit. But I, again, I saw Hallie's speech at the Raspberries. They didn't know when they were making it. They had their heads so far up their own asses 
They didn't know. She actually said that during filming, Alex Bernstein knew, but she didn't tell Hallie. She just keeps looking at Hallie and going, Hallie, you're the best Catwoman ever. <laughs> and Hallie believed it. <laughs> wow. It's really great. I mean, she actually brings her manager up on stage at the Razzies and tells him to next time read the script, not just look at the zeros after the one. Yeah. <laughs> you got to give Hallie props for that, that she was able to laugh at herself. The fact that she went to the award ceremony where they were crowning her the worst actress and did a parody of her Oscar acceptance speech and told everybody that was involved in the making of this that they were fools, including herself. It's the only thing you could do. It's the only way to survive a turkey this bad. Benjamin Bratt, I really haven't seen him since. But Hallie, she's worked again, and it's partly because she's a beautiful woman, and then part of it is that she was just able to say, I know that this is dumb. I always think it helps to be self-effacing and to admit when you've done something wrong. George Clooney did it with Batman and Robin. She did it with Catwoman. And she did it with Grace. She did the Razzie speech as committed as she did the Catwoman <laughs> role. It was... You do, but it's good. I'll put a link on the Facebook for the listeners. Does it deserve it? It won Worst Picture, Worst Director, Worst Actress, Worst Screenplay. It was up against, what, White Chicks, Baby Geniuses 2, same year as AVP, same year as Exorcist the Beginning. Is this the worst... I guess we'll have to find out. It's the most delicious of what you've named, that I can say. But Jacob Stewart, do you recommend Catwoman, Jacob? You know, we've had a lot of fun at Hallie's expense. No. Do you know what happens to a toad when struck by lightning? Well, when you take that line, <laughs> grind it into a fine powder, huff it, and then make a film, you get Catwoman, the essence of, <laughs> do you know what happens to a toad when it's struck by lightning? But here's the thing. Like, we get these films, and we've had these films before. Are they so bad, they're good? You know, Arnie, we have our red down arrows and our green up arrows. Maybe we need a green down arrow for this type of film. Because this film is awful and you're not going to get how bad it is from listening to us. Like, it's something you have to see. The first time I saw this, I sat in horror yelling for my wife to come in and experience this. It was something, like, I couldn't describe how bad this movie, like, every decision that's made in this film is. It is transcendent and how awful it is. <laughs> and so, yeah, you have to see it at least once. If you want to understand bad filmmaking, you got to experience bad films, and this is a damn fine one to experience. So, recommend, but not in a good way. <laughs> Stuart. <laughs> I don't know! <laughs> There's no good answers! I, it is apparent that this movie is terrible. You don't need us to tell you that it is not recommendable as a superhero movie, as an action movie, as a coherent story. You know that. You get that. If you were asking me if I am entertained watching Catwoman, guilty as charged. I'm with you, Jacob. This movie is hilarious. I mean, from start to finish, the basketball scene, her eating tuna out of a can and running catnip on her face, and just every time that Hallie is going for it, it's hilarious. Every time Benjamin Bratt has to sit there <laughs> with that pained, <laughs> fake face of empathy, it's just wonderful. Every time Sharon Stone like breaks something and it doesn't affect her stone face, I just there's no way that I can't be entertained by that. If you love showgirls this is the sequel you have been waiting for it is high camp russ meyer craziness 
delicious because most of them did not know they were making it. The best kind of camp is not the movie where they know that it's trash and they get through it. It's that they actually think that, yes, they're making Spider-Man and they wind up with a box of cat litter. I mean, it should be buried, it should be destroyed, but I can't. I can't do it. I can't do it. So I think that's a recommend. (laughs) (laughs) Truthfully, we were talking earlier and it's chewed at me. Who is this film targeted at? Who is this film made for? I really think this is a film that only like a leather fetish BDSM sex freak could enjoy. No, I didn't enjoy it on that level, Arnie. (laughs) (laughs) What are you saying about me? And then you better be the masochist because this film's going to hurt. That I'll agree with. <laughs> and we all are because we're now playing home. And our li- long-time <laughs> listeners are too because they watch their movies. Or they're the sadists who just get off on our pain. Yes. Because really, that's what this does come down to is a leather bondage whip fantasy. Recommend. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute! That's what I was saying, and you were like, no, this is an example of feminist new way, blah, blah, blah. Come on! That's exactly right. Back then, I was talking about what I think they were trying to do, not what they accomplished in doing. (laughs) This movie is better than a lap dance, but worse than Howard the Duck, I think is what we're saying. (laughs) It truly is. But, I mean, it's so torn, because... I enjoy Howard the Duck, but I didn't give that a recommend I, because you didn't. No. How did you not? I said I love it, but I can't recommend it. Hmm. But I think Howard the Duck isn't so bad. You gotta watch it. This is with Garbage Pail Kids for me, you know. And Stuart, you have a lot more of those than I do. But this one, I, I just couldn't look away. I actually went back and watched it a second time just for pure giggles. I think what the trick of it is, defining when it's so bad that it's good, is if it can sustain itself for the whole runtime. Batman and Robin is equally as hilariously bad, but there are long stretches where I'm not laughing. I'm just in pain. It's literally painful to watch. Ergo, I didn't recommend it. Catwoman, from start to finish, I have a broad Cheshire cat grin on my face. I am never not laughing watching this movie. I think that's the key. As comedy, it's gold. That 15 minute stretch where they actually start detecting, it loses me. And if the end had not redeemed itself by going so bug nuts, (laughs) then I probably would have not recommended just off the last half hour. But you're right. I'd say out of it's a very short film, which helps too. If out of its, what, 100-minute running time, 85 of those are hysterical. And, yeah, recommend. Okay, so the people that demanded we watch Mask of Phantasm, we tell them three not recommends, and Catwoman, <laughs> we're all saying we're cool with. Do we have any listeners yet? Did we just lose everyone? Sorry. <laughs> I can't blame them. I figure every show we lose at least one. The question is, can we get to more? (laughs) Well. So this ends DC and comic books for us. This is the capper, folks. For a while, at least. This was not part of the Batman retrospective. The credits in Stuart's speech made that clear. But this is the end of our superhero journey. Glad it could end on three 
green arrows, and it was a far more slam dunk three arrows. It was a Halle Berry basketball court slam dunk versus last week's show where it was, you know, kind of a rim shot that fell in. I agree. You know, yes. Uh, this is unequivocally an amusing movie, and it's fun to end on a laugh. I think that's what we're really saying. Oh, on the whole, I got to say the Batman run was pretty good. I liked most of the movies, even the bad ones. You know, like I think with the exception of the two Schumacher films and the cartoon, it all got a pass. And some of them were really great movies. So this has been a great way to end what has not been such a great superhero run for me. I got to say, having seen the heights of the Nolan Batman, going all the way back to 60s and Tim Burton, I really had a good time this time. I got to say, this is one of the best franchises we've done. And we'll be picking up DC again next year with Man of Steel, But for the rest of this year, we've got James Bond starting not next week, but this Friday, both at NowPlayingPodcast.com and over at BooksAndNachos.com. Stuart, you're reading Casino Royale, and that review will be posted at BooksAndNachos.com once a week, a Bond review to go along with our twice-a-week movie reviews. I've been looking forward to this. It's going to be huge, but Brock's a super fan, and I think we'll carry you along, Arnie. I think we're really going to have some ups and downs for sure, but I think it's going to be a good one. So we'll be back on Friday at the same cat time, same cat website. Talk to you then. (laughs) Cat women are not contained by the rules of society. You follow your own desires. This is both a blessing and a curse. You will often be alone and misunderstood. But you will experience a freedom other women will never know. You are a cat woman. Every sight, every smell, every sound incredibly heightened. Fierce independence, total confidence in human reflexes. Thank you for listening to Now Playing's Catwoman Review. Thanks for the party. I had fun. Part of our DC Comics movie series. Did good? You did feel good. Head to NowPlayingPodcast.com where you can hear our other movie reviews, including reviews of all the Batman films, Green Lantern, The Avengers, Howard the Duck, and more. You like it? Love it. You can also listen to our non-comic-based movie reviews, such as Star Trek, Terminator, Halloween, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Tron, and others. Well, I'm not sure how you did it, but I'm impressed. While at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss this show with other listeners. You don't seem so fun deficient to me. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where the hosts post new episode announcements and written movie reviews. How can I reach you? The links to our social media pages can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. Aren't you glad I pushed you into it? Props to Sally. Hmm? Let me get my props. (laughs) Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. We will launch next week as planned. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. I had no idea why I expected your art to show better taste than your wardrobe. You can also show your love of Now Playing Podcast by shopping in our store, where you can't buy latex cat suits, but you can buy panties, t-shirts, coffee mugs, calendars, mouse pads, and much, much more. Time to accessorize. Now Playing's Catwoman Review is edited by Arnie. Headaches again. My brain's all 
tight and cranky. Now playing credit narration by Brock. Wow. Now playing is not affiliated with Warner Brothers Pictures or DC Comics. Catwoman and all that DC's Infinite Earths contain are the property and trademark of Warner Brothers, and no infringement is intended. You see, sometimes I'm good. Oh, I'm very good. Sometimes I'm bad. But only as bad as I want to be. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. I, I was saying it, but I wasn't saying it. You understand? Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2012, all rights reserved. Take it easy, partner. Bye. <laughs> Cat got your tongue. I mean... To me, that's like saying, oh, we're going to do... We're going to do an Aliens movie without the alien? Oh, wait, we got that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cat got your tongue. Yeah, she's a she's your classic... Well, I said that with a weird accent. She's your classic... You've been in Texas too long. I did. It came out <laughs> weird. <laughs> Cat got your tongue. And... Oh, crap. I had something that I just blanked on it. Um, beat off ass basketball. <laughs> um, beat off ass. <laughs> <laughs> Only on now playing. <laughs> oh. Cat got your tongue. This isn't that much different than Daredevil and Electra on the tater... Tater tots? <laughs> <laughs> this is... That's a movie. <laughs> Ben Affleck, Jennifer Garner eating some fried potatoes. <laughs> they are in Georgia now. This isn't much different than Daredevil and Electra on the teeter tots. Teeter totter. It's called the teeter totter. <laughs> <laughs> this isn't much different than Daredevil and Electra on the playground. <laughs> there we go. Cat got your tongue. I said during it, I'm like, I know the Hot Toys license kind of goes back. They're doing some of those old 80s Batman movies. If they went back and did this, I might have to get it, especially if it had the alternate head with the milk mustache. <laughs> Cat got your tongue. True story. I, I, you may not want to include this, but true story. I actually was one time behind a Benjamin Bratt at an ATM, and I watched him punching in numbers. Boop, boop, boop. And he could not get money out. <laughs> 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 I just perpetually feel bad for Benjamin Bratt. I'm like, oh, do you want 20 bucks? <laughs> <laughs> you were in Catwoman. You deserve 20 bucks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Benjamin Bratt's being outed for poverty. <laughs> Cat got your tongue. Perfect. Perfect. Cat got your tongue.